and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Pollyanna Lenkick, I am so excited to hear your story and I'm delighted that you agreed to be my guest. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh gosh, it's my absolute pleasure and I can't wait for everyone to hear your story. But let's start with what, tell everybody what you're doing now. Sure. Um, I suppose in simplistic terms, I'm a high performance coach. Uh, so right. um, and I help, what that means is I help organizations create uh, environments and cultures where people want to be their best, but actually more importantly, Jules, where they can be. Yeah. So there's that. Ah, uh, yeah. There's a good. That's a good. A d- <laughs> really good differentiation. Really important distinction. Yeah. Um, and I do that across um, some signature programs across leadership, leading self, leading teams, creating leaders, and also team effectiveness. So teams I work with get 25% uplift on engagement and performance. And you know. Wow. And what kind of companies are you working with? Like big corporates? Is yeah, that kind of? I've been doing this for 20 plus years. And my, I've got to because really <laughs> you know, as my kids say, because you're that old mum. Um, and I, um, I work across not-for-profit, corporate, uh, mid-tier professional services firms. Um, really diverse, right. really diverse client base, which I love. But you know what? People are people, right? Um, so That's right. That's right. A lot of the challenges that that come, some are environmental and specific to the environment, and some are very human and specific to us as human beings. Okay. And so my next question has to be why. Why are you doing this? Where, what, what do you want to see changed? I want to see, um, I'm deeply committed to seeing the gender equity rusty dial blasted and moved. Woohoo! Um, so <laughs> it's, you know, what's missing is men aren't taking a seat at the table. And yep. we need to, what's working now, and I know you spoke to Michelle Redfern and, and I'm so aligned with her thinking, you know, we're mentoring She's amazing, yeah. She does extraordinary work. <laughs> and... I've been educating leaders and CEOs for decades on running yet another confidence building program for women is not helping. Women don't need more confidence. It's not like we're be deficient. We just need a booster every year. Let's just, no. let's just bolster we, we up need the opportunities. <laughs> we need opportunities. We need an environment where potential can shine. And yes, you know, uh, programs that develop and support individuals to be their best, really very effective. Uh, programs that support systems to create high performance and, and a culture that people want to be in and do their best in, really needed. What we don't yeah. need is um, the solution isn't creating more confidence. Uh, the solution is creating environments where people can have equal access to the same opportunities are paid equally. Uh, so we need men yes, to absolutely. step up. We need men to step up and uh, be a part of this because it's better for them. Gender equity is... A, a healthier option for both men and women. And yep. the program that I've been, I've been deep dive, I've been head down deep dive for the past 18 months working on a new initiative called Wellbeing Equity, Pathway to Gender Equity. Because if we change right. the conversation to our collective well-being and support both men and women to co-create a future together, that's when we yes. can achieve gender equity. At the moment, it's it's skewed, uh, you know, as if there's something wrong with women and we need to go fix them. Actually, the systems are broken. It's the systems yeah, that we need to fix. Yeah, so I, I get thing, so excited about this work because um, it yeah, will make a difference. I, I, yeah. Well, I'm going to get you to tell me a little bit more about it because it sounds amazing. Mm. Um, but one of the other things that I was talking about when I was chatting with Michelle and, mm-hmm. and a few other female CEOs now is the idea of encouraging women to connect within organisations so they have each other's backs yeah. and so that, you know, that those women start to see each other as friends and trusted partners so that they can all help elevate each other. And I think that's something else that in in the last larger organisations has just been let to drop because of that mm. patriarchal view of competition is the best way to get the most out of people. And so therefore, you know, the women aren't necessarily helping each other as much as they could be because they're sort of, you know, there's this scarcity mentality of there's only one job and we all want it rather than, you know, we could all lift up. And if we had a female in, in control and she really liked it, maybe there would be more roles for women anyway. I mean, it, there's all sorts of things yeah. that can happen on the back of that. 
I, I love I love this conversation. So women aren't the issue. Women aren't the problem here. Women no. do lift each other up. Women do support each other. Uh, there are. I mean, what are the the, the latest stats? Um, only over. Um, I think what's the latest stats on WIMPs? I think one in five CEO board chairs are women. You know, so over fifty percent of the workforce are made up by women, but only twenty percent of the of of those women yeah. are CEOs. So you know what? You've had a bad female leader. Is it a women's issue, or is it or is it a human issue, or is it just exactly. poor leadership? So we need to unpack some of those narratives that we just believe to be true. That whole queen yep. bee thing. You know, there are twenty five words that we only use to describe women. There's a journalist from the UK did a um, a, a report. Oh, that's on really it. interesting. And one of those, my good old favourite, she's a bit of a queen bee. You know what? For every queen bee, guess what? There's a king Bruce. It's probably narcissism, a personality disorder. <laughs> it's probably just shitty leadership. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So the whole narrative of women not supporting women, um, I, I just want everyone to question that. Uh, we, no, I know. agree. I agree. Yeah. But I have to say that, you know, just anecdotally from mm. the ones that I've been interviewing, people are saying to me that the massive shift that happens when they go out on their own compared to when they work within an organisation yeah. that fosters this, what I would consider quite toxic kind of competition kind of mm. mentality, um, rather than they come out and they go, right, I need help or, or, you know, I don't know who to ask and all of a sudden women are everywhere going, can I help you? Yeah. And they kind of go, wow, I didn't really experience that when I was in the corporate world. So I guess I just love some of that entrepreneurial women mm. or women in small business kind of mentality to be brought into large organisations too. But you know them much better than I do. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing with the course, how the course is I mean, I don't want to talk for ages because I really want to get into your life as well because yeah. you've had an amazing life. But I am really interested in in what you've created and and how that you think that that's going to make the change happen. Yeah, I think um, the aim of wellbeing equity is how do we is bringing to um, people together and it's more than just an awareness. Like Jules, we've got awareness. There is so much data. Yeah. There is so much data. There is awareness. It's actually about an awakening. What are we going to do yeah. with this awareness? And can we can we tap into the courage that's required? to look at the narratives that we've just regurgitated. Like think about some of those sayings that we say, you know, kill um, uh, kill uh, one bird, two birds with one stone. I mean, who wants to kill a yeah. bird? Nobody. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, using different phrases that and questioning why do we believe what we believe? Why are we saying what we're saying? And how do we yeah. change that narrative deep inside within ourselves and then out with others? How do we take a stand for that? So wellbeing equity is about changing the conversation to collective wellbeing however you identify so that everyone That's lives that. a healthy, yep. well-balanced life. We cannot do that when over half, 50% of the population are, are, you know, are still um, earning less uh, than the other half. That's so right. So we or need not, to create or not getting their And not getting their opinions and their needs Correct. and wants and everything else at least spoken about. Yeah, so it's recognising so, the right of, of all people to live healthy um, personal and professional lives and reach potential. And guess what? Organizational bottom lines, of course, they'll lift when that happens uh, because yes. there is that positive um, ripple effect. And I think um, so. We need to change the conversation, and we need to look more deeply. And we need to we have awareness. You know, gender uh, leadership is probably one of the most researched topics. We have, <laughs> I would we, say, we, we have the information. Now we need to yeah. shift the conversation. So what we want to do is create psychologically safe spaces for men and women to come together in dialogue and co-create. Moving forward, we need men at the table. We need them to willingly take a seat at the table and we need to yep. work with men because um, in 2018, uh, World Health Organization uh, did some research of um, European uh, men across the European region. And what they yep. discovered is no, will be no surprise to you. They discovered the direct correlation between men's mental health and gender inequity. Gender equity yeah. is better for everybody's health. For and everybody. I don't know yeah. that men realize um, the the extent of that and you know men are going to have to give up some power um and so what i find is men men are generally well, maybe not give it up just share it share it yeah you know, it's, it's yeah, they don't have to lose anything it's about adding Correct. something to another string to their bow rather than taking anything away that's the and and to me mm. the the absolute logic of if half your customers are women and yeah. half your staff are women, why the hell wouldn't half your board be women? It just doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense. Um, and we need to, what we do, what, what's got us to this point in time in history is not going to get us 
to where we need to go. We need men and no. women co-creating, working together. Um, and, you know, that's, that will shift the dial. So that's what excites me tremendously about the work that we're doing. I mean, I'm doing that in partnership with Lee Gassner. So, again, co-created leadership. You know, we need men and women yeah, love working it. together. Love it. We can talk more about that when we have lunch. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So... Yeah. The next thing is why. What's the why for it? Why did you decide to do this particular course? Uh, do you know, it's. I probably have to go back in time a little bit. You know, we, yeah, we, we, we had those sliding doors moments, right? Um, yeah. You know, I grew up in country Victoria, and the expectation for me was to, you know, turn eighteen, um, get married, and have a lot of kids quickly. Uh, so. My parents, um, in particular, my father had a, a very nineteen fifties Croatian view. <laughs> Um, right. of, of the world and like a lot of migrants you know he extraordinary courage to come to a new country um, yes, and he sort of froze totally. in time a little bit uh, so whilst they were coming towards a better life they froze in time from the values so we were sort of brought up with 1950s 60s values of the village in Croatia so pushing out of that takes an extraordinary amount of courage you know when you're often reared to look for approval, acceptance. Um, yes, so of blasted through that. So it started then. It's never one thing, right? It's always a succession of things that take you. Oh, right. You. So there wasn't an actual moment where you went, oh, my God, somebody has got to do this course. I might as well do it. It was more yeah. of this sort of gradual coming to the right place, I guess, because you've had a so. – and I'm itching to hear it. Well, you know what? Let's get into the story of your life and then we can come back to come this because it will come up as part of it, Do I you think. Know it will. And the light bulb moment is what we're doing is not working. And the yes. constant, constant um, narrative around fixing women got to a critical point about 10, 15 years ago where there's nothing wrong with us. We do not need fixing. I think that was the launch pad for this work. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so Pollyanna, yes. with such a great name as well, I have to say, I've, <laughs> I, I don't know whether it was just in England because I grew up in England, mm. but Pollyanna and the story of Pollyanna and how she always put a positive spin on everything has been such a huge part of my life. I don't even remember the story, but the Pollyanna bit, I totally do. So yeah. love your name. Um, and you've just given us a little taste of that you grew up with a Croatian family. But take me back to uh, brothers and sisters. What did mum and dad do? Did they encourage you to kind of, you know, what? what? Tell me a bit about your childhood first. Oh, gosh. Um, well, there were- <laughs> <laughs> I always do this and everyone goes, oh, my, oh my God, gosh. I can hardly remember. <laughs> I can hardly remember. That was a, that was a while ago, love. Um, I think, um, well, you know, country Victoria, uh, migrant parents, uh, they, you know, we, we, we were brought up with strong values around community uh, work ethics, helping others. Uh, I have okay. a, uh, a brother. Well, I have t- two brothers and a sister, but one brother and two cousins who came to live with us uh, due to very tragic circumstances when I was about 10. So, right. you know, we strong community big family. focus. Yeah, big focus. Yeah. So they end up, you know, the four of us grew up together. Um, and yeah, it was, you know, it was actually remarkably average, to be honest, but we were groomed to, uh, groomed is a, not the right word, but we were reared to in very defined gendered roles, uh, because yes. that's what they knew. <laughs> You know. But I think also mm. that is that generation and we are the product of that generation. Correct. So that's why it's so freaky that now we're all 50 and going, hang on, we're not going to be old people like our parents and grandparents yeah. were and we've got completely different values. But we're the generation, I think, that's changing that. I think so. I um, remember my father, my father has passed now, but I remember my father said to me one day when he was looking at the things I'd done, you know, the company I built in London, I skydived for 15 years and you know, travelled extensively and he just said, you know, it sort of would have been easier if you were one of the boys doing that. And and there we have it, yeah? You're going, hello, Um, Dad. Okay. okay. (laughs) I remember my dad saying things to me like, there's nothing worse than seeing a woman drunk. And I would go, but you don't say that about my brothers, you know. I yeah. mean, we're all 20. We're all going out and he'd be going, I know, but there's just something not right about women. You could, I'd just be going, oh, my God, how hard is it to drag you into this century? Yeah. Okay, so you grew up with um, that family. Did you like school? Were you good at school? Did I like school? Um, school was challenging in some ways. Primary school was tough, uh, especially because we lived in a small country town and, and the circumstances um, of uh, my, you know, other brothers and sisters coming to live with us. So that was that was challenging in some ways. Secondary school, I had a good time in secondary school. Uh, and I was, yeah, I was just in the pack. I wasn't extraordinarily brilliant. I wasn't, you know, struggling on the side. But 
you know, there were certainly um, times when I didn't give it my best. Yeah. That's fair enough. So did you go to year 12? Um, I didn't. I left school at year 11 and then I, um, I actually did a four-year hairdressing apprenticeship, which was remarkable. I just learned. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. So, That's a nice bit of trivia about you. So do you still do hair? Um, do you cook, cut all the, the your sons and husband's hairs? I was, I was very much in demand during lockdown, I can tell you, with my family. Oh, um, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. So, look, I, I just I learned so much about people. I learned so much yeah. about customer service. I worked with the most extraordinary man. I learned a lot about inclusion and what happens in when inclusion um, when there's not where, where the inclusion doesn't exist. Uh, the two people. What I do you mean for, by that? I, I worked with a beautiful man called uh, CB, and he and his partner Jerry had he had this hairdressing salon, and Jerry had a um, art gallery. And in small country right. Victoria, especially when AIDS um, was starting to come to the fore, I just oh, saw um, a really ugly side of humanity. Um, mm-hmm. So they taught. Did they me, all start picking them on them? Yeah, there were um, you know friends were getting beaten up, and uh, it was pretty horrific. Oh my god! Time. Yeah. And I learned so much from – they were two of the most extraordinary um, people I've ever had the privilege to to know. So I learned wow. – and then from there I I decided to go overseas and I went to London in um, 86. For a, so, so what prompted, though, the trip overseas? Was that just it's time to get out and I want to do a gap year or did you want to get back to Croatia to understand it? I don't know whether you'd been there before. Mm. How, did, how did you end up in London But what was the, and what was the intention when you left? Um, the intention was to get out of um, <laughs> I think, at the time. But you didn't want to go to Melbourne. Uh, you decided to go, to go a bit further I, afield. I, think I, needed, I, I, I sort of had a bit of a calling to go further afield. And I yeah. also knew that um, by... By going further afield, it would – I just wanted some adventure. I think it was actually really simple. Everyone in the 80s – I'm just turn my head yeah. on. Everyone in the 80s was travelling, you know. It was just like, what are you going to do with your life? And I knew that I needed – I wanted more than the career I'd chosen. I loved the creativity aspect of it, but I was looking for more in my life. So I just thought I'd go right. for a three-month backpacking holiday that lasted 17 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's like my three months lasted seven. Seventeen yeah. is even better. So, so tell me about the trip. So, you, you booked? Did you go? Did you plan on going straight to London, or did you do a bit of travelling no, first? No, we we went to Thailand and then went to oh, the usual Aussie trail, you know, Thailand, Europe, yep. um, and. Um, I've got a lot of cousins, like, you know, Croatians were everywhere. Um, so I went to see some cousins in Italy and they had a yacht and we sailed with them for a while and just did some remarkable things. Who's we, things. by the way? Um, who who I went did you on go my, with? I went on, I left Australia with my cousin, Brunette, and then we separated okay. once we got to Italy. So I travelled right. on my own, I travelled with others. Um, and it just opened my world, Jules, you know. It opened yeah, my it world does. of potential. It's... And there's something really powerful about being somewhere else, you know, landing in London and going, right, what am I going to do with my life? Well, it's also who do I want to be, isn't it? Because when you do go to a new country and for people that haven't done it, mm. one of the great things is no, you've no history at all. Yeah. You can be whoever yeah. you want to be. You can present yourself in whatever way you want to present. There's none of those old hang-ups. But right. arriving on your own in London is scary. I mean, mm. it, 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 it's one of those places where people need to get to know you a bit before they consider you I mean, they're, they're polite to you, but to have them in your home and start getting invited to dinner parties takes time and things in London. So it does. What, where, what did you do first? Well, I arrived in London through Dover because Heathrow wouldn't have let me in back then um, with £40 pounds right. in my pocket and no return ticket home and I didn't know anybody. <laughs> um, and that was pre-internet. <laughs> You know, so there were no mobile phones. Um, I had my yeah. had my Let's Go Europe, you know, going, where do I go? So went off to the Walkabout Club, as you did back then. Um, and, you know, within 24 hours I had somewhere, you know, with, I had a job, had somewhere to stay and, and then from so there. So did you do the Aussie thing of living in Acton in a big house with 15 oh people God, yeah. or did it was you? fabulous and hideous at the same time. Um, <laughs> Queen, Queen's Park for me. It was Queen's Park and right. just an extraordinary amount of bodies in that house. Um, well, I don't think anybody probably listening, if they haven't been to London, realises yeah. how many Aussies there are. I will never forget arriving and, and saying to stopping someone to say, you know, can you direct me to whatever? And they were like, yeah, no worries, mate. And I was like, oh, my God. Then you go into a bar and they're like, how many beers do you want? And you're just going, what's going on? And then yeah. I re- discovered certainly through the 90s that there were at least 500,000 Australians in London at any one time, which I meant know. they were around every corner. They were everywhere. Um, and it was a great place to to go and, you know, retrain. And, 
And from there, I started the path of learning. You know, learning is a huge value for me and, and I haven't stopped. Um, Great. And it's so what was amazing. the first job and, and then how did you get into tech? first job was a chambermaid at the place I was staying at because I didn't have enough money to pay the, um, the, the accommodation. Um, but I got Great story. Yeah. So, um, and, then, um, and then I worked for a media company for a while, uh, which was fun. Uh, just Doing in, what? Just what? started off entry-level admin um, okay. and then went, yep. you know, moved on from there. And then I had an opportunity to co-found a technical specialist IT recruitment consultancy because... So how does that even happen? <laughs> how do you get an opportunity to co-found? What happened? Um, my partner at the time, so I'd been there for a couple of years then, uh, had a was a contractor in the UK, had uh, an agency on the side, but he could never actually um, give up his full-time job to work it, uh, to make it, you know, to pull, pull it into a, a business that could sustain right. um, you know, his income and also the income that I was earning a lot less back then. And so yeah. I just thought, I'll give it a go. Why not? Uh, and then I was at a party and one of his friends literally patted me on the knee and went, oh, you're going to be doing a bit of secretarial love for, you know, for the company. And I just took oh offense to that. Oh, my God. And so. I can't imagine why. Yeah, fueled, fueled <laughs> with a bit of Chardonnay. I think that was the, the drink of choice in the day for, you know, for London. Uh, I, yeah. I made a bet that I'd double his salary in 12 months' time and we put a bottle of Bollinger on it. Right. And, which was, Nothing like that as an incentive when you're a poor. Yeah, no, I, was, I was earning £14,000 a year at that point. So for some perspective, yeah. and they, the contractors were earning £1,000 a week. And so yeah. I woke up next morning and went, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, and then just got to it and I won the Bollinger. So within, so, so how, how did that work, though? What Was was he doing tech? So you were kind of going out and getting the clients and managing and the front people. end of it. So, so and then and he was and he was the one who was kind of directing the technology side of it. Correct. And and then I just started right. a learning path. Um, you know, it's, um, right. yeah, within 12 months we were profitable. Uh, I took that from, you know, me, the cat, the back bedroom from home. Again, this is pre the sort of technology we have advanced, the advantages <laughs> yeah. of now. It's hard to describe to people, isn't it, yeah. if they don't know it? I had a phone. I used to go to the news agent to fax um, and I just set, I just got to work and took that. When I sold my 50% shareholding in 2000, we were turning over 11 million pounds and I had 18 full-time, we had 18 full-time team members and 100. That's just ex- yeah, 110 That's consultants. That's amazing, Pollyanna. It's actually quite extraordinary. When I look back now, I go, I, I just remember my first day, like, you know, the procrastination piece, uh, you yeah. clean your space. So it took me like a week to clean my space. Then I'm like, this space is really damn clean. I just better get to work. And I had a phone <laughs> and notepad. And I just remember like hitting my head against the desk and bursting into tears going, what the hell do I do? And I'm, where do I even start? And then, yeah. then I started. You know, you start where you start, don't you, at the beginning, as they say. Um, and it was an so. What did you do business. to land that first client? Uh, use the connections and I, mean, I don't mean what do you do do you do do yeah. if you know what I mean. I just mean um, how did you find them because you know you hadn't been over there very long. I asked for help, so I contacted all the contractors that I knew through the my you know, uh, partner at the time's contacts. Yeah, and and I interviewed them. I said, "Tell me what you really dislike about agencies, what they do that irritates you." I interviewed them, and then I interviewed all the potential clients and said, what really irritates you about the way agencies support you? So I took that information. I went, well, I just won't do that. Um, it seemed pretty I know, obvious. But then on top of, and then on top of that, obviously, you've got a whole lot of people that you've basically said, I'm going to create an agency that you want. <laughs> so I imagine just that research itself brought some clients in, did it? It, it did, and BP was the first client um, because wow. the, um, uh, you know, just because of those connections and the connections that my former business partner had uh, with with um, the company as well, you know, just and a good service. You know, going back to what I learned when I when I was working for CB, you know, really caring about the outcomes for the people that you're working with. I mean, how many people do you meet and they they you know turn, don't care? They don't care. Well, or they they just misguided. I think people care. They just communicate about their process and what they're doing rather than understanding what process and what the client needs. So in the journey of 17 years, and I know this isn't your business now, but I'm fascinated by it and I'm sure lots of women listening are like, oh, my God, if I put in 17 years, would I end up with an 11 million pound business? No, it was 10 years. Um, it was 10 years that, that I had 10 the business 10 years, for. even yeah, more. Yeah. That, what a huge, huge achievement. Um 
Talk to me about some of the ups and downs of that business. Did you have any moments where you kind of thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We've lost this massive client or, some, you know, whatever might have stuffed up. But you look back on it afterwards and go, well, it took us in a different direction and it was, you know, a bit of a blessing in disguise. Did you have any of those uh, moments? Not really. I tell you, the, you know, the, the image that comes into my thought, very, not a very pleasant one, but the image, I remember being in the toilets before a really important meeting at JP Morgan in Pall Mall, vomiting in yeah. the toilets like I was so sick. <laughs> so a lot of the challenges were the Is internal that nerves ones. or was that just illness? Nerves, no nerves because right. they were all, yeah, yeah. to me, they were all older men. Yeah, I was always. And very intimidating. Intimidating. And, you know, you go into these old um, financial institutions Institutions in the UK, it's all the you know the oak boardrooms, it's it all is. this push and fancy, but it looks like you in the eighteen hundreds, right? Um, well, I worked at Coots Bank, and at yeah. Coots Bank they have someone in a top hat and tails that works oh at the front so... door. I mean, it's it's so old fashioned, and also there is an, a way that people in England can put you down that no one in Australia ever manages to do in quite the same way. I think yeah. you know, there's that patronising kind of. I just remember people used to go, "You're so Antipodean," and I'd be oh, like, "Oh they my used to say god!" That to me as well, yeah. So I, so I, so I flipped that. Yeah. The day I was vomiting yep. before that meeting, I, I made a decision. I decided not to allow myself to get so intimidated by other people. Yeah. And I'm, and the people that I met with that day were delightful. You know. Yeah. And I was the only woman in the room. And to me, they all looked like old men. Bless them, they're probably only 30, right? I was 24. <laughs> and I'm just going, oh my God. Yeah. So, and I decided when they said, oh, you're Antipodean, I had a response for that. Yeah. Prepared spontaneity. You know, you, yep. you, you listen to a great person doing stand up, they're not just making it up on the fly. They're prepared. Yeah. Prepared spontaneity. Right. When I skydived, prepared spontaneity saved my life many occasions. Yeah, you do the drills, you do the work, you practice and you refine. So I, I, I right. got all of those phrases that they would ask me and I had a response. I can't remember them now, but I'm sure they were brilliant. Um, I'm sure they were, I just knowing you. I had a response for them and it calmed me, it calmed my nervous system, it calmed. Well and done. so I, I yep. actually owned that I was an Australian. I owned that I was yeah. the only woman in the room and I just did it in a way that didn't intimidate me anymore and, and or that, antagonize them or antagonize combination. them and you know people people generally want to help so i would just say yeah. tell me what you need what you want how and and here's here's some help that that you know would be great to help me get that you know provide that for you i worked really hard jules and i delivered yeah i learned very well early on that relationship gets you so far you, you can't it's like it's like the teamwork I do. You just focus on relationships, sure you'll get on well, but you're gonna get fired because you're not getting any work done, right? The project's not going in. If you're just yep. productivity focused, then you are making the numbers, but everyone's, you know, in, in ER recovering uh, because there's no downtime. So you have to have that balance between And saying I'll never work with them again. Yeah, yeah, you need to have positivity and productivity. So I just got in and and, and did it. And I just, yeah, you just get on with it, really, don't you? Um, well done. I, I'm just, I'm just incredibly impressed. It is hard to get going in London. I mean, once you get going, there's momentum, but yeah. it is hard to get going. But let's go. You mentioned skydiving, mm. and you've mentioned it a couple of times. So talk to me about skydiving. Awesome. How does that fit into the story? I wanted um, something that took me away from, you know, uh, the the hours I worked were long and hard. And yeah. I just needed something that gave me so much focus that I didn't, couldn't think about work. You know, you have to be fully present when you jump, right? Right. So you weren't interested in maybe going to watch movies or anything. It had to be jumping out of a plane. <laughs> I was always pretty physical. I always played sport, you know, country towns. Right. Um, you play a lot of sport. Um, and I, I like the physical of it. I like the, the, the challenge. What is Susan Scott Jeffers? Or I think she's just Susan Jeffers now. Um, or Susan Scott. I can't remember. Sorry. Um, yeah. Fear stands for false expectations affecting reality. You know, and I, I wanted, I've always challenged my fear barriers. To, I've always tested those limits. And I found that skydiving right. was a really healthy way to do that because it gave me everything, Jules. It gave me community. Like, you know, that deep, Community is big for me. So this is all in England, though. This is, is this is this where you started skydiving? Started jumping at Headcorn um, in Kent. Then right. um, when it got rainy and cold in London, which it often did, we'd jump on someone's Cessna and fly to Spain. And that was just so cool. Right. You just fly to Spain and you put you tuck your <laughs> back in those days. You could just tuck your passport in your in your in your pocket 
and dive out of a plane and then go to customs in the little airfields. It was so much fun. Oh, my God, that's I've jumped hilarious. around the world, Kenya, um, wow. the US. I've done everything from balloons, big military planes. Do you still do it? Helicopters. Oh, look, I haven't for ages and I need to – I've still got my rig in the in the loft, but I keep thinking I'm going to jump again. And so you do not. it again though. You're, you're, you're So – how long were you doing it for? I mean, all the way through England and obviously Australia as well. Yeah, I jumped after my first child was born um, and then I had a series of pregnancies and miscarriages, so that took me off the jumping set for a while. And, look, will I do it again? I I believe I will, but I haven't for right. a while, so maybe I just need to get a little bit of honesty. My, my hero in life is Charles. He sadly passed away in 2020. He gave up skydiving when he was 92 because the M4 was pissing him off. He just felt he shouldn't right. be driving anymore. And it's like, Charles, you're a hero. He completely redefined <laughs> aging for me. Um, yeah, you know, ex, right. ex-RAF, awesome chap, um, and stopped skydiving when he was 92 because he just didn't think he should be driving anymore. That is so funny. Mm. Happy to jump out of a plane but not to not drive. Not to drive, yeah. Um, okay, so you had this business in England for 10 years. What happened when – what prompted you to want to leave and what happened next? Um, it was a values-based decision. My business partner was my partner in life and then became yep. my ex-partner in life. And I truly felt that I couldn't move forward with my life if I stayed tied to the business. And I also believed that the business wouldn't survive um, two exes. I mean, you know, we could be as mature as we wanted to. And I think we did really well leading up to it, but you can imagine it got messy and ugly at at times. So it was a really difficult time for me. And I think, um, I call it a change bomb. You know, when you, when, when, you know, the universe or life is knocking at your door going, you need to make some changes in your life. That is so much better than pivot. I'm going to use change bomb from now on. It was like a big explosion, Jules. I wasn't listening to the signs. I was procrastinating, avoiding, head in the sand. And so it blew up in my face. And I just had to. In what way? um, What does that mean, blowing up in your face? What happened? um, Some personally life unraveled, uh, you know. So it just, um, I just needed to make healthier decisions for me. And healthy yeah. decisions for the health of the company. So I decided to exit. Um, and it was a game of value decision. And did you decide when you were exiting the business that you were going to leave England as well? Was that kind of the end of that period, did you think? Or at that stage, were you still thinking, I'll just leave the company, but I'll stick around here? Because 17 years is a very long time. I mean, it's a whole community and a life and uh, people you've known for a long, long time. It was really hard. I decided I wanted to come home. And I think there was a, a need there to come home and, you know, integrate, you know, who I am. And it, it was actually um, a really positive thing to come home. So I decided to sell the company. I have a motto which someone shared with me when I was about 18, 19, always leave when you're having a good time. And I thought, that's awesome. Oh, that's a yeah, good motto. Yeah, getting messy. Um, so I um, decided I'd only leave the UK while I was having a good time. And I also made the decision to swear off English men forever um, clearly that didn't work out so well because my, my husband is English. And we, you came to Australia and met an Englishman. No, a bar in South London, love. It wasn't, it wasn't romantic at all. Um, and so we, um, so I just decided to stay, sell the business, my shares, stay in the UK, have a, you know, leave when I'm having a good time. Uh, and yep. then the decision was then to leave um, and come back to Australia, which you know, I'm, I missed. It took me five, six years to integrate back into Australia, and I'm delighted I did. I, I love being here. It's funny, mm. isn't it? When, when I mean, London is so exciting and the travel is fabulous and all the rest of it, but I remember mm. on hot days just I, I, I had a company car, I was working at an agency, and just jumping in the car going, I just need some beach or some something mm. on a hot day, and you'd just drive and drive and drive and there wasn't any go you know I lived in Brixton and you'd go to yeah. the Lido which was beside the park and literally that everyone would have their towels they'd all be sunbaking in the park with like two inches between them all yeah. you know covering the whole thing it was it was crazy so you and I started hankering having bacon that didn't froth when you cooked it and tea that didn't form a skin and just little <laughs> things like that so when you come home it seems so fresh and fabulous here doesn't it Oh, it was a transition and I won't lie, it was a transition and, you know, you, you, you have to be really clear, are you moving away from something or moving towards something? And if you look at the oh, um, a- research from – it's a, that's very – it's a goals-based yeah, focus as well. But the research they've done around immigrants, um, you know, for example, go back to my, my, my parents – 
my my father always talked about moving towards a better life. Yeah, it was very political in, yeah. in Croatia at the time. He escaped when he was 17. He was in a refugee camp for a year in Italy, and then they gave him a choice of countries, and he picked Australia because it was furthest away. And right. he moved towards a better life. You know, he learned the language quickly. I mean, he spoke four or five other languages. English wasn't one of them, but he learned English really fast when he got here. He integrated into the community, met lots of local people as well as his community. Um, you know, he wanted to. Whereas yeah. one of his brothers moved away from a bad life and didn't integrate as well. You know, right. so really interesting. So I was just moving towards the next chapter and it just felt like time. You know, it felt like time to do so. I mean, we go back okay, so regularly. Okay, well, so well, let's talk about So you mm, arrived, mm. you got back here and obviously did all the woohoo, I'm home and say, seeing everyone. What yeah. did you decide to do then? It was a bit of a transition. So I lived in London for 18 months after I sold the company, sold my house, oh, okay. bought a, a warehouse apartment in, in Clerkenwell and you know, just lived a bit of a city oh, life for a while. It was very fun. groovy. Yeah, it was really cool actually. Um, and yeah. then um, skydived around the world for a bit, uh, did a bit of consultancy. And then I started recognizing that people had this image of me. They kept saying, well, Pollyanna, you're so successful. Okay, look, I, drew, I drove a, I had the traditional trappings of success, right? I drove a yeah. Porsche around London. I had a nice apartment. You know, we had, my, Sean and I moved in together, had a nice apartment in Clerkenwell. And I skydived in really exotic places around the world. So on paper, that looks great, right? Yeah. Um, and it was fun. I loved every minute of it. Skydiving kept me healthy emotionally and physically uh, because when you're focused on the jump, you can't engage in other behaviors that could derail you. Yeah. So you're not, yeah, not going to yeah, stay out late in the wine bar because you're jumping tomorrow. Um, so it was yeah. a really healthy thing to do. But then I realized that the image others had of me, I couldn't, I couldn't look them in the face and go, yeah, that's how I feel. My self-esteem was down the toilet. I felt. Um, right. I didn't feel successful inside at all, even though, and I thought, what's this about? So I started having conversations with women in back in 1999 as I was exiting out. My deal came through. It took me 18 months to exit out of the company. Deal came through in November 2000. I was sitting on a beach in Kenya, just did my fifth, eighth skydive for the day, and, and I was just like, who? Eight skydive for the day? Yeah. Eight, I thought eight you eight only my- did normally one a day depends on uh, that's why you, you leave the UK so you can get more in for better weather conditions um, yeah right <laughs> but um, yeah so the release of that was extraordinary but going back to the how do women I got very curious about how do women see themselves and define themselves through the lens of success and then what's important about this to women to organizations yeah. to others that that has that's the, that's the seed Jules that, that has brought us to well-being equity yeah, what's going on? Right. Um, because the traditional paradigms and metrics for success were one-dimensional. You know, think about yes, all the. Yes, they are. Yeah. So then I did a, a, a survey in 2006, uh, and I surveyed 563 Australian women and asked them about their uh, relationship with success. Well, hang on, hang on. Though we've got a gap between 99 2000 mm-hmm. when you were, came over here and 2006 when you're surveying women. What were you doing in between that time? Um, well, move obviously we moved country, had a couple of kids. Um, while we're doing that, right. I also that's, um, set up my coaching practice here in 2002. Um, and I was, coach, okay. I was coaching clients in the UK when I first arrived here in, in um, 2000. We arrived here in 2002. So the moment I landed, I right. set my business up here uh, because I knew okay. I wanted to. This work is extraordinary. I mean, coaching and what I do has given me so much and has enabled me to contribute so much. It fills my heart every day, Jules. I can't. I just pinch myself. I can't believe how lucky that's gorgeous. I am. And um, so I just, um, it's evolved. I mean, you, you start in one place, don't you? And it, and it grows and evolves as you grow and evolve. It does. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. So so now we'll go back to, so you were saying in 2006, you um, surveyed all these women mm-hmm. now that you've joined the gap. Sorry about that. No, no, I love that because um, I love that you're keeping me on track. You're, that's fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's because I'm really interested to know. Yeah. Okay, so uh, so what was it that made you start this survey in 2006? Well, I started having all these conversations with women around the world. I just, you know, randomly, you know, someone would contact yeah. me and I'd go, hey, do you, do you want to have a conversation about success? 
and it just became fascinating. And I started to, you know, you, you're pulling out the themes and the narratives and no, I need to know more. So then I, why don't I do a survey? And, you know, if I can get a couple hundred people responding, that would be great. And we got 563, which was fabulous. So that became... <laughs> uh, because women finally being asked what they think about things, yeah. well, they would have all jumped on it. And then I asked, So what was um, the outcome of that? Well, the outcome, I thought you might ask. So I've got my outcomes here, oh. which I just got them for oh, you. Oh, you're good. So key findings... Look how organised you are. organised. <laughs> 91.3% of respondents said that they felt successful. Um, however, yeah. what was really, but they started to talk about the drivers for success, which were very different and how organizations didn't set up environments and cultures, no surprise, for women to be successful. They were still driving them through the, um, the, the metrics. But they really, this will be of no surprise to you, good relationships, work-life balance. You know, 51.8% people said good relationships um, def- felt that they had arrived at a successful place in life. Yes, Work-life balance, 45.7%. It was ahead of money, 11.7%. So we knew there was a gap there to work with women to value themselves. I I remember when I was um, negotiating contracts back in my 20s in London, before this was even on my radar, I just started realising that, women would undersell themselves, men would talk themselves up and good on them. Oversell themselves. But we had to learn from that, right? So whenever Mm. my favourite conversation when I used to ring a contractor up that was female was like, oh, love, I'm sorry, I didn't get you what you wanted. I got you 50% more. I got you 30% more. I got you 20% more. Um, because they never, never um, valued. Asked for, asked. Yeah. yeah. So um, so it gave some really it's, great information. Um, I think it would. Uh, it, it's interesting in that survey that 91% of women considered themselves successful. I wonder what percentage were earning high salaries. No, exactly. Because, yeah. because I don't think that that is a correlation. I, well, I no. think we all probably know that it isn't. That's but. Um, it would have been interesting if you'd done a whole lot of men because I have a feeling that money would have played a much bigger part in what they perceived to be successful. Yes, and that's a project I'm working was. on right now, um, the success Ooh. the success project. Uh, I want to survey women in success, men in success, so that's in the works at the moment. Um, but look, oh, what, wow. it, what it so, gave is it gave an opportunity for really good dialogue with women to check their thinking on um, you know, again, that balance between being financially successful and valuing the role and the skills they bring to a role, how they perform in that and just um, untangling yep. it from their own self-esteem and how they feel about themselves. I could never ask for that money because, well, actually tell me about the role you do, the skills and capabilities and everything you've done to get to this point in time. So for that role and these skills, you'd probably be looking at another 30, 40% of what you're asking for. Um, it's a deep, oh it's a deep, deep topic. And so from there, it just, I've been reading Matthew McConaughey's um, book, Green Lights, you know, and he talks about a green light yeah. being synchronicity, essentially, you know, around, you know, you get a green light and you just keep going. And sometimes they all stack up. Sometimes you have to stop and you've got to, you know, question that. Um, I've just probably yeah. diminished his great book <laughs> about that, but essentially, and I really liked it. I thought it was really interesting. Did you? Because um, I've heard a lot of people say that they really liked that book, but I saw, I don't know whether it was Clementine Ford, but it was mm. definitely some uh, pretty active feminist saying mm. that during the course of it, he talks a lot about how Camilla has made his life possible mm. because she does everything to do with the kids. And if he ever needs to take time out, she lets him go. And the, the, perspective they had was, well, wouldn't that be nice for all of us? I mean, what about letting Camilla go off and have a weekend or, or you look after the kids the other way? And I, I guess, so I haven't read it yet, but I, I'm interested to know your take on that. Yeah. Did you, um, let me refine, was that very I like, obvious I like to you? the green lights aspect. I didn't like the, um, you know, the aspects around, you know. However, it makes my life easy. Correct. And, and same throughout that conversation, I'm going, I wonder how Camilla feels about this and has she had space to have a life in this relationship but I was looking at it more from the synchronicity point of view which is which I actually really liked so um so yeah we digress what do you want right, to know now? Do. I love digressing. I love digressing <laughs> and as then well. I go, well, I can't um, remember can't remember what we were talking about now. Um so so to, so and that pretty much takes us up to now I'm guessing does it yeah, so my absolutely. next question so my next question to you is around women that may or may not have helped you in your career. Mm. And the only reason that I like to ask this is because I feel, firstly, I'm on a mission to make women more visible, yeah. but also because 
um, there are often some women that are quite key in our lives. And I think it's nice for us to be able to kind of name them and give them a shout out. But it's totally up to you. I've only ever had one woman who said, no, I can't think of any women that have helped me, which just about broke my heart. I can think of a convention. Well, the first person I'd like to say thank you and acknowledge is you, Jules. You're helping me today by allowing, giving me a platform to share my work, share my story, um, you know, to have that ripple effect and that cascade effect of what that will do for other women and men listening to this podcast. So I honour and say thank you to you because you are one of those thank women. Thank you very, very much. Um, my grandmother, um, Baba in Croatian is his grandma. So Baba Pava um, was an extraordinary yeah. woman, uh, had a tough life, man. I mean, she you know, had her first child at 15 and kept going um, because that was the reality of her life. Yeah. She had a strength and a grace that has carried me through um, some of my darker times, which has been really great. She, I, I met her when I was seven for the first time when we went to Croatia. Right. I, I speak Croatian probably really badly, but I think I speak it okay. Um, so she was extraordinary in giving me strength and connecting me to generations of strength. The women in our line are strong. You know, they are really strong oh, isn't that women. Great? What did she, when you say um, she was really strong, is it just in terms of the hard life that those women have and the number of children and all the rest of it? Or was, was there anything in particular that kind of, um, was she a role model for you in some way, I guess? Yeah, she was incredibly optimistic and very pragmatic. Oh, I love That's why you're um, called Pollyanna. Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, my parents were watching Disneyland when my mum was nine months pregnant, about to drop, and Pollyanna came on. And there's a place in Plitvica near, in between Zadar and Zagreb called Pollyanna. So they went, oh, that's pretty cool. Ah. You know, Pollyanna, so the Croatians call me Pollyanna. And, and yeah, I right. I did meet Hayley Mills when I worked at the, I worked at the sanctuary for a while in Covent Garden. Um, that was a pretty cool gig. Um, and, oh my um, god! That's where we went for my hens night. Well, I'm, well, the hen, the recovery. Yeah, we did. We, the hens night was at Browns in Covent Garden, yeah. and the recovery day in which we were all lying by the koi cart pools in in the sanctuary, nice. and everyone was dashing off to the toilets to vomit <laughs> and then come back. And oh my god, it was funny though. It was a beautiful place. Uh, but, oh, um, you met Haley Mills there. That's pretty yeah, cool. Yes, so I had my name bag, and I was just like name badge. I was like, yeah, your fault, love. Um, but I think <laughs> with my um, my grandmother, she. She was just very pragmatic and she it's, – it's easy for some, some – when you've circumstances overwhelm you, it's easy to fall into a martyrdom or a victim mentality. She was never a victim. Yeah. Uh, she right. just um, rose above that and I just loved her thinking, her philosophy on life. Uh, she didn't have oh, the fantastic. same opportunities that we had. So she was remarkable for me. Um, you, my, my beautiful friend, Lisa Short, Professor Lisa Short, who does extraordinary work in the world, who I've introduced you to. Um, she's been, oh, yes, I'm, she's I'm been remarkable. Uh, last year we did a keynote. Uh, I, did, I was invited to do a keynote for um, the London Securities Agency on launching wellbeing equity and testing our thinking on it. And also wow. I just I need a platform to test um, uh, thinking on that. She goes, oh, well, why don't you do a keynote for London Securities Agency in partnership with you in uh, Women UK? And I'm like, <laughs> well, why not? That'll do. Um, so I invited. Yeah. I invited. Wow. Um, so extraordinary opportunity. So Lisa continues to be someone that connects me uh, to people. We have great mentoring conversations and we have just great conversations. So remarkable. Oh, um, she sounds great. You know, the whole community through Home um, Homeward Bound, you know, I was on the leadership faculty for HB3. That whole community. Well, just explain what that is first to people um, because not everyone sure. will know what Homeward Bound is. So look at the interview that um, Jules has done with Fabian Datner, the, um, you know, the chief dreamer and conceiver of Homeward Bound in the early days uh, and what they've created, an extraordinary cohort of women who support women globally uh, to advance leadership uh, and in STEM. So more women in influences, in positions of influence and power. So I was on the, I went, to, got to go to Antarctica to work with um, 80 women from 26 countries, and I was part of the leadership stream. So it was an extraordinary Amazing. environment. So, but but you know we've got a WhatsApp group, and if any of us need, so there's, you know, all of those women on that WhatsApp group. And when you're having a shitty day or a tough day, or a, or you've got some news to share, they just lift everybody up. They're extraordinary. So that's the power oh, of what you're talking about. that's fantastic. Um, you know, I've got, the list is long, you know, the list is long of the people that okay. I have. So well, give me two more really key ones that have helped you, particularly in business. Um, key people that have helped me in, in business, probably my sort of peer coaching buddies, um, you know, Celeste Halliday, uh, Holly um, Smith, um, Heather Jane Gray, 
and Emily Blundell. They're just, you know, they're people I can bounce off. They're extraordinary. Um, I've got a long list of supporting amazing women in my life. Um, that's that you know that just fills my heart with joy mm. that you have such a long list to be honest because you know that that's mm. what we want we want every all the women to be helped by other women yeah. um all right we're we're getting close to the end mm. i'm very interested especially when you're talking about your wellness program and work life balance mm-hmm. Let's talk about how you personally juggle work and life. Do you separate it? Have you? Have you mm. uh, well, firstly, the, the question I'm asking is based on the fact that there's so many women I've spoken to that have had some kind of burnout. Have you ever got close to that? And how do you juggle your life? Yeah, look, I fell in a complete heap after when I sold my company. Um, you know, I, I reached burnout at the, at that the wonderful age of 34 and ended up with an autoimmune um, disease and was very sick for oh, a long gosh, time. Oh, gosh, did you? Yeah, I was really sick. At one point I, could, oh. one point I couldn't hold a knife to cut an onion uh, because I couldn't do that oh, range of movement. God, so I healed it. myself through nutrition and sheer bloody will, I think. Um, and <laughs> um, so burnout happened for me at 34 and I had to make some really honest I had to look in the mirror. Yeah, I had to look in the mirror and go, yeah. how do I contribute to this and how will I set better boundaries? For everything that you say yes to, there's a no. For everything you say no to, there's a yes. It's one of the first things yep. I learned in my coach training back in 1999. And I just have really firm boundaries. I have firm boundaries around my health and wellness and they're non-negotiable. Um, so what are they? Tell me Tell me about like top level, a typical week. Are you ex- – Exercising every day, taking weekends off and stopping work at six, or how do you yeah. structure your week? Um, I don't work Friday afternoons. Um, you know, I tend to just you know do a mop up. Neither on do a I. You should be coming to our lunches. I think I will. Because I'm I don't do myself. Friday afternoons. It's a great way to end the week. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I started um, that. Okay. Um, yeah. So I st- sorry. sorry I don't I, know whether this was that me that I freeze on you. Um, I um, no. We just had it just for anyone listening because well, there was a bit of delay. That's all. Yeah. And now off you go. You tell us about. Okay. Your week so again. I started um, taking Fridays off. You know, back in my late twenties, early thirties. So remember, time off and reducing your hours isn't just for people who have got family commitments. Uh, whether it be at caring for an aging parent or whether it be children. Very well said. So it's really yep. important. So I used to go skydiving. Look, everybody in London used to you know, get hammered on a Friday afternoon. I decided I'd skydive right. instead. So I would drive. You know, <laughs> a I'd, much better idea. I'd beat the traffic to Oxford and, and spend the weekend you know, jumping. So I've continued that. So I'm really clear about what I say yes to and I'm really clear about what I say no to and what the opposite of that is. If I say yes to this, what's the no? I make sure I'm in bed at 9.33 nights a week minimum. Um, yes, I exercise. Wow, that's a good rule. I like that one. Yeah, I actually have an alarm. What time do you wake up though? Six, six thirty, six six thirty. That's okay. Um, Great. That's good. And it just sleep. Look at all that great work that um, uh, Ariana Huffington has done and brought into the world around. You know, again, yeah, metrics of success. Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Yeah, you'll be dead sooner. You know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and you're not going to enjoy living in correct. the meantime so sleep's, because you're working all the time. Yeah, right. So sleep's really important. Um, my kids laugh because I have an alarm set on my phone and when it goes off, I don't care what we're doing. I'm like, yep, oh, I'm going to bed now. So three nights, <laughs> I, I've been for a run this morning. I run, I paddleboard um, and um, I've, what else? I've got a, a, a dance class thing that I do, which I feel like a complete twit when I'm doing it in front of the TV. I do that really early so my kids don't walk in and see me you know, doing a bit of Latin dancing while I'm trying to get fit. I just mix it oh, up. I think that's right? great. I just mix yeah. it up. Um, and oh, you do sound like you're totally on top of it. And then weekends, presumably, are for weekends. Weekends are for weekends. Yeah, we, I get up early. So Sean you know, doesn't get up as early as me. And, and the kids, obviously, they're teenagers, so they'll sleep forever. Um, so sometimes <laughs> yes. if I get up early, I might you know, write or do something. But it's not an obligation. It's inspiration is hit, and I'm going to spend my time doing this. Um, I've got really, I've got I think, yeah, I. I think long hours are completely overrated. And I and I have to say that a lot of times people say to me, oh, my God, how do you get everything done? And when do you sleep? And I'm like, I am a slacker. Yeah. I, t- I feel like I am. I'm, I'm like you. I like getting up early. I probably most days don't work much after three or four mm. um, because, you know, I, I know I'm shit in the evenings. I'd be better off getting up at five if I need something yeah. to be done. And the and, research and, supports And weekends that. are sacrosanct. Yep, the re- yep. The- and you can still get lots yeah. of stuff done. Well, you actually get more done. If you look at the research, you get more done and you're more productive, you're, doing you're more those creative, kind of you're more bursts. innovative. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can't, you can't be your best when you're exhausted. No. 
Oh, well, I love it that you've got that structure around um, mm. around your working week. Okay, uh, you've given me a couple of quirky facts already. I mean, I love the skydiving and a couple of others, but is there one that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing with us? Oh, I don't know. I suppose it um, depends on who's watching. Um, I'm quite clumsy. I knocked myself out. <laughs> <laughs> quite clumsy. That's, that's, that's not a, that's not a quirk. I I'm mean, quirk. I did knock myself you out. You are allowed to be. I'm um, 18,000 feet over a beach in Kenya once. So that was a bit messy. Um, oh my god! What do you mean? You locked yourself out knocked, of what the plane? No, knocked myself out, like out. Oh, knocked yourself yeah, out. Yeah, I'm clumsy. Um, I knocked myself what, out while skydiving. You were unconscious, or was it actually on the plane? No, no, I jumped out. With- no, tell me this story. <laughs> I need to hear this story. And actually, that quite that's a quite quite a nice link to the confidence piece as well. So, oh, look, we were in Kenya. Um, we weren't being very smart um, because we went to eighteen thousand feet to do a jump. At fifteen thousand feet, you need oxygen. And we were in a fast right. plane and we just went, oh, come on, it won't take us long to get to 18,000 feet. Let's just, let's just go and we'll just jump out quick. Well, of course, we all probably got probably hypoxic. Um, so we jumped out and I just, like I just, there was a, a when, you, when you skydive, you take the door off the plane and you just have like a little Constantina door. Um, so right. there were, you know, I know there were about eight, nine of us all. No, I think there were about 20 people crammed in the plane and we we're doing a, a, an eight-way formation over the beach, sunset, you know, impress the tourists, land on the beach. And it's all That's this, the eight-way formation is that circle that everyone holds hands, Correct, right? Correct, yeah. And, we, you know, you plan it all out and you've got to fly your slot, otherwise you ruin the jump for everybody else. And so when we jumped out, I remember earlier on in the day going, there's a hook on that uh, on the door. We should tape that up because some Muppet's going to slice their head open on that. Well, I was, I was that Muppet. Um, and so as I came out, the force of the di- I was one of the divers, the force of lifting you out of the plane, I smacked my head on the plane, tore my head open. I had a leather helmet oh, on. Um, oh, my God. Pariana. And the next thing I knew, I, was, I just sort of woke up and I was at 5,000 feet. And I'm going, <sighs> okay. <sighs> but here's what's interesting, Jules. Prepared spontaneity, yeah, muscle memory. I, when we look- I was going to say, thank God you've done this so many times before. Yeah, so when you look at the video, I am falling completely stable. Yeah, my body wow. just went bang. And when I landed, you know, I was bleeding, I was crying. Uh, one of the guys initially was an ex-squatty, ex-SAS, is going, you crying, Doris? Um, you know, because I had to have my head <laughs> stitched up and, you know, I was really yeah, yeah, not, well, not my head has been open and <laughs> I <laughs> fell out of the sky <laughs> unconscious. I almost died. I almost died. <laughs> Let me just have a tear. But yes. after that, people started saying to me, oh, my God, you, you, you got lucky. And I started asking people, what saved my life that day? So, Jules, I ask you, what saved my life? I'm leading the witness here, so you know there's something coming here. But what saved my life yes. that day? What do you think saved my life that day? Well, as you mentioned earlier, and I don't know whether you gave away the punchline, but the fact that you had done it so many times before, mm. so there was that muscle memory, I assume. And also lucky you weren't diving on your own. I don't know whether people do dive on their own, but thank mm. goodness there were eight other people around oh, no, you were, to help build, you if that hadn't happened. They were building their own formation because I was falling stable. They're going, what the hell? Why isn't she over here? She's ruining our jump. Yeah, so they were no Oh, help. right. So they had, didn't realise you were, you'd were you been knocked out. No. Gosh. So prepared spontaneity before every jump, 15-minute yep. reserve drills. And so people often say you must be really confident. It's got nothing to do with confidence here. Yeah? There's that confidence thing. Oh, you've just managed to survive a jump. You must have been really confident. I don't think confidence plays a part in this. It's nice to have when we have it. However, it's not required. Yeah, preparation, yeah. Um, you know, honing your skills, your craft, uh, getting out there in the world, none of that takes confidence. Uh, you know, it takes a bit of courage. That's no, very true. But none of it takes confidence. So, yeah, all good. So, yeah, I've done some loony things like that. After the, the conflict in Croatia, I went for a run along my normal running track and wondered why all my relatives were standing on their balconies watching. And I don't know whether my aunt, she's got a really good sense of humour and it was funnier in Croatian. But she sort of, um, <laughs> when, I, when I got back, she's like, good run. And I'm like, yeah. So why were you all watching me? She goes, that was the Serbian front line. We haven't cleared the mines yet. <laughs> oh I don't know to this day whether that was, I mean, it was, it was the front line and there was a lot of conflict there and they were really impacted, of course, by you know, what happened um, over there. I would like to think um, that your family who were all watching you, if, it, if they really thought there were landmines, would have yelled out and said, don't go that way. They couldn't. <laughs> so, they couldn't. They wouldn't have said, I know. They couldn't me. get to you. No, they couldn't. Oh, God. So, who knows? But it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I think, you know, that's probably about as quirky as I can give you for – I don't, not too no, sure. That, no, that's, a, uh, it, I take it back when I said it's not quirky. That was very quirky. Yeah. Last question, nothing to do with anything other than I'm obsessed with my own phone and my apps. Are there any business apps, unusual ones, mm. I guess, not the 
normal ones. But any that you, I mean, a lot of people don't play on their phones or work on their phones, but I do. So I'm just wondering if there's anything I should know about. Oh, I like Rev um, because it's that you can, you know, if you're walking along and you've got an idea for an article or a blog, you just put your headphones in. Oh, so Rev's the speak to text or something, is it? Transcription as well. There are other ones like that as well. So it used to be really great when the kids were younger. Yeah, I use Otter. Okay, I might have a look at that one. But, yep, same thing, I think. I'm I'm not that great on technology, actually. I'm not considering I had an IT recruitment consultancy. Any other useful ones? Are there any other useful ones? I don't know. I think you have to help me with that. I'm not great on technology. <laughs> no, no, no. That's absolutely fine. I just wanted to ask. Yeah. Well, listen, Pollyanna, if anybody wants to get hold of you to talk more about the course or any of the amazing things that you do, what's the best way for them to do that? They could just drop me an email. It's probably the easiest way um, at Pollyanna at PollyannaLinkage.com. I'm pretty easy to find. Just put my name in the search engine and you'll come up with my email address or um, the website. And, you'll fi- and find you on LinkedIn as well. Find me um, on and what's the web? And what's the website? Um, PollyannaLinkage.com. Okay, yeah, fantastic. So and and if they're interested in the course, that's still the best way to get hold of you. Is there Absolutely. any thing about the course anywhere? Um, well, it's on the just web- hot off the press. So if they would like to contact me, I can send them some information um, around wellbeing equity. And the first thing is a conversation, a conversation around right. what their needs are, whether any of the work that I deliver, the first step is a conversation to make sure that it's the right um, process for you. Perfect. Well, listen, you are an amazing woman. I'm delighted that we had this opportunity. What great stories you've got to tell. So I can't wait to share this. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jules. And thank you for your support. You're a remarkable human. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sthebos.com.au.